0: Tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This past weekend, environmental and community watchdog groups gathered at Pearl Harbor. They say uh, it marked a year's anniversary, a turning point in the Red Hill water crisis. They call it a liversary. The Sierra Club, Oahu Water Protectors, and others gathered to make their desire to sit at the table with the Red Hill task force members known. They met near Pearl Harbor, known to Hawaiians as Pu'uloa, to underscore the situation at Red Hill, known as Kupukaki.
1: wai o e nakanaka e e ola <laughs>
0: Ola i translates to water is life. The Sierra Club's Wayne Tanaka explains why the groups chose to meet outside the Arizona Memorial, which is alongside the military's hotel pier, where leaked oil has also been found. Pearl Harbor and water from the Navy system continues to be discharged into Halawa Stream and into the ocean at a rate of millions of gallons a day. Here's Tanaka.
2: So on October 8th of last year, that is when it was revealed that the Navy officials had not disclosed an active leak from a pipeline in Pu'uloa, actually not far from here. So we thought it would be significant to highlight the fact that it's not just the aquifer, it's not just Kapu'kaki, but it's also the waters of Pu'uloa, you know, once cherished in abundance, again, source of life for this island.
0: The concern uh, from a year ago by uh, Navy officials was of the optics at the time of having an active leak while their permit was pending.
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. You know, in, in the leaked emails that we were able to obtain, Navy officials expressed cons- political concerns uh, given that uh, if the leak became active, it would advance an anti-Red Hill narrative by activists as well as, in their words, reduce uh, regulator confidence in their ability to detect leaks, um, get, and, which you know, was a serious question that we continue to have given that the active leak was ongoing for about six months or at least six months.
0: The military is in the process of preparing to unpack the pipes. The DOH has given approval with conditions, and the military says they will give us a date once they have the approval with no conditions. What are your concerns at this point?
2: Uh, so to be clear, the million gallons of fuel that are in the pipes right now—that's a problem. You know, one million gallons of TPHD is enough to contaminate uh, 2.5 to 10 trillion gallons of water, depending on what uh, environmental action level you look at. Uh, and so, this uh, this fuel needs needs to be removed. Obviously, what uh, what is of Additional concern, though, is the over 100 million gallons of fuel that remain in Kakakaki that we're being told will stay there for nearly two years, posing a a daily existential threat to our existence. Um, And as Mauna Loa is telling us right now, earthquakes are real. Um, And so, you know, that continues to be a a, a daily concern.
0: And the uh, members here today, those who have gathered here today, want a seat at the table with the task force. They want monthly meetings.
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. We, you know, first of all, who water protectors feel like it's essential and so many other folks feel like it is essential, given this year of, of misrepresentations and unshoots, to have a third party, civilian and Kanaka Maoli uh, inclusion and not just inclusion, but oversight over the activities of the Red Hill uh, uh, Joint Task Force uh, to ensure that, you know, our concerns, our recommendations are being addressed.
0: So you're basically uh, asking Admiral Wade to hear your
2: call. Yes, Admiral Wade and everyone with authority uh, to ensure that this task force does have the appropriate uh, membership.
0: Anything else that you want to say just in regard to the military's plans at this point?
2: Uh, You know, I think for a lot of people it seems like a big deal. It might even seem commendable that they're finally saying they're going to do something about removing fuel. Uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that for the better part of this year thus far, the Navy has been fighting our demands and the Department of Health's order to uh, to defill the facility, uh, even after they finally conceded that it's, you know, it's not acceptable to continue operating the Red Hill facility, they've continued to miss deadlines, violate orders, uh, ignore demands from the Department of Health and the Water Commission. So, you know, you know, I do think it's again important that they remove this feel As to whether they should be commended for it, you know, I, that is something that I'm, um, you know, I don't believe is necessarily appropriate.
0: That was Wayne Tanaka with the Sierra Club. And Honolulu Board of Water Supply Chief Ernie Lau was invited to the weekend gathering, but he says he was not uh, asked by the military to come to observe the unpacking of the fuel from the Red Hill Pipes.
3: We weren't involved or didn't have any opportunity to review any of the plans on unpacking, but I understand the Department of Health is going to have some observers present when they do that uh, sometime this month, about a million gallons.
0: Do you want to be there? Have you asked to be there?
3: Uh, no, we haven't asked to be there, it would, have been, it would have been nice if we had a chance to take a look at the unpacking plan and maybe offer, could have offered our suggestions or observations on it. If they don't unpack the pipelines and whatever the repairs they intended to do the, to those pipelines it's kind of held, held up, uh, but they need to unpack it safely, There's about a million gallons which it looks like they could do it pretty quickly
0: anything else in general just as to where we're at with this process?
3: I think in this process what's very clear, and we saw it here today, it was reiterated multiple times, the need to engage the community and to have the community a part of the process. Uh, So they need to figure out how to do that and they need to get it implemented quickly.
0: That was Honolulu Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau. Oh, we do plan to hear from Deputy Environmental Health Director Kathleen Ho tomorrow, and we are awaiting a request to hear more from the military about the defueling plan. <music>
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Robert Jensen. And I'm Wes Jackson. We're the authors of An Inconvenient
5: Apocalypse. Next time on Dune Dimensions, we'll be talking about cascading ecological
3: crises. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
4: Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University, committed to teaching the concepts of social justice and affecting change in Hawaii's communities, offering an online master's in criminal justice studies, shamanad.edu.
0: This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
6: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai,
1: O Lana, O Hawaii.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we look back at the modern-day revival of the Polynesian voyaging tradition. Since the historic 1970 voyage of the Hokulea, Hawaiians have been able to learn the amazing skill of celestial navigation that had very nearly been lost to history. Uh, the journey provided that ancient polynesian uh, navigators had a system of navigation that allowed them to find landfalls throughout the pacific with pinpoint accuracy and to maintain cultural ties among island groups over a 10 million square mile um, expanse of ocean so for today we go back to the 1995 voyage that celebrated those ties with some ceremonial visits throughout the pacific rim Do you remember the name of the vessel that measured 54 feet and carried 500 square feet of sail? Uh, What was that voyage? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag.
4: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Haleo Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nairithawaii.com.
0: The second weekend in October is traditionally when close to a thousand people would have descended on the friendly aisle for the Molokai Hoi. This year, it would have been the 70th anniversary of the 38-mile channel crossing, but much has changed during the pandemic. The participants and the community are engaged in talks about a possible reset. We talked to veteran paddlers Ikaika Rogerson, a former uh, Okra board member, and Molokai resident Kavika Crivillo about the race's history and its future. We hear first from Rogerson.
6: The Molokai Hoy would have been held traditionally on the weekend before Columbus Day, which would have been yesterday. Because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to host a race for the last few years. And situations have changed over COVID. We don't have Hawaiian Airlines flying passengers back and forth to the island of Molokai. And there's been some rule changes from the city and county of Maui, which doesn't allow for vacation rentals, which means hosting a race like Molokai Hoy or Navahine okay, Kai, in its traditional sense that we've been doing every year for the past 70 years is not possible in that sense because of the limited or lack of areas for people to stay and being able to just fly to the island. Because there's only one airline, we think as the Okra Board that it's more important to allow the residents of Molokai to be able to get back and forth to their island, to Oahu, to get medical treatment done. And we don't think it's right just now for us to be able to host a race there on the island and use a lot of these resources that the island already needs.
0: And Kavika, let's talk about the footprint because, I mean, this race has grown to, what, a thousand paddlers?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you figure about men's would be about 80 canoes. Right, Keiko? 80 or so, and then the women's. It fluctuates every year, but yes, escort boat, people, coaches, paddlers.
0: Both you gentlemen have done the race. You know what it is all about, and you recognize that, yeah, it's not pono to descend on the island if you don't have the infrastructure and the logistics are complicated. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Speaking from a community point of view, and I'm from Molokai, When the race was canceled and the concerns were taken in, that, as far as Moloka'i people, that was huge. We looked at it as they took us into consideration. And it's pono that it was done because, one, of course, the infrastructure. And there's also a time to to let the island heal in a spiritual sense. And when you speak of the spiritual sense, you speak of culture. And when you speak of culture, of course, Moloka'i, you know, it's a lifestyle. So that's really important for us, that the Va that is pono with everything else, that when it says time to go, then we know that everything is aligned. And, you know, that's what Moloka'i and Navahine is about. And we have all these different races on Moloka'i now that gets bundled up with The Moloka Ehoy and Navajine, but we know as paddlers and community that those two races are the epitome of, you know, basically the ones that set the foundation for all over the world as far as distance paddling. We want to do it the right way so that 2003, as we open up again, it's done in the right manner and that everybody is on that same wavelength, same mana, if you will.
0: So earlier this year, as you were looking at the schedule, you made that decision back in February, I think, to not do the channel. And around that time, you know, we were having the Omicron surge, and that was very scary, and, and nobody really knew what was going to happen. But as the season was going, you know, people were worried about the fact that, yes, this is 70 years, and we want to acknowledge the history and the culture. And, and I think there was some discussion about having maybe a smaller event with elite race or an invitational but that didn't work out either. Ikaika?
6: In planning an event of this size, like there's so much that goes into logistics. Just paving the road down to Hale Olono costs us $20,000 to do. Getting all the escort boats is another $40,000. So it already takes us like a minimum of 85 crews to even just break even. Right. But yes, with Omicron being the way it was at that time and the unsurety of things, and Molokai having the minimum amount of outbreaks that they were having already, we didn't think it was funnel for us to go over there. And who knows, we're bringing international paddlers over, and the community doesn't have the hospital capacity and everything. So we, we didn't want to bring anything COVID over to the island that was unnecessary. But having to make the decision as early as February or even for next year, like we need to start looking at your stuff now, it takes, A whole lot of logistics and to get things in place in order to be able to just host a race of this capacity. Because of COVID, the Molokai Koi committee was tasked to look at different options, so what we tried to come up with this year, we put in a lot of work into it. We've been over to the island of Molokai, we had various conversations with multiple community members and community groups, and we wanted to get down to what is it that we all want to be able to see when a race of this stature comes back, and what was said by the community was, you know, we want to have more community involvement. Before, when Molokai Hoy used to start, like the community was involved in every aspect. We used to camp in everybody's yard, mm-hmm. and some kind of clubs still do that. Versus buying your stuff at Costco, bringing it in because it's cheaper, staying at the hotel or staying at an Airbnb or something, and not really having much of an interaction with the community versus the way it used to be when it originally started. So we made a valiant effort to try and make an Oahu race base that could host as many crews as we used to hold for both Navahine and Molokai Hawaii. And then maybe having that be a qualifier to an invitational race the following weekend and doing a smaller version of Molokai Hoi retracing our steps back to the original place where it used to start because Haleolono is not very accessible at this point. Going back to Kava Kew or somewhere on the west side and starting the race there and having a small contingency of paddlers retrace the original route from Holokai back to Waikiki.
1: There was much to unpack in a short small window of time.
0: Could We could talk about you know maybe there, there might be some residents there on the island that don't want the race
1: you know, um, yes, there are. And it's one thing about Molokai, and it's not about protesting the race. You know, all of us on the island were either a part of it at one time or their parents or their grandparents. So it's embedded in us, you know, our generations. And it's not about protesting the race. It's truly about what I get from the community is protecting and educating visitors and paddlers of who we are and what our kuleana is, and what we're about, and the values of Moloka'i, and what's important. So, you know, the race is not that just itself. You know, when Moloka'i Hoi first started, it was a part of an event, the Aloha Week, a festival. So, you know, part of an event, part of something, you know, a celebration. And it kind of steered away from that a little bit from the island's perspective, where it became... Just the race itself. I think it got bigger. No fault to the organizers. Competition is competition. It grows. It's now internationally too. So it's for Molokai, the ones that were not so much against it. They just wanted to bring it back into the importance of how it used to be and the very core of what panning is about more protecting versus protesting. So that's their concern.
0: So we go back to the roots. Reset. And Reset. The, the conversation then continues as to what will happen in 2023.
1: Yes. And you know what I must say, when sitting down with organizers and Moloka'i Hoy and Navahine Okikai and a lot of these other individuals that hold these races, they are very in tune and they're taking the concerns of Moloka'i people, of course, because Moloka'i people, we can be really, um, you know, when we draw the line, we draw the line mm-hmm. um, and that's just Molokai, and they're known for that, you know. But by no means is Molokai want to just say, shut it down. We don't want it. We just want to do it the right way. And like you said, scale it back, take a look at it to what's the very importance, the very core of what Va'a is about, and more communication, and just being putting everything on the table and being transparent.
0: We have been hearing from Molokai resident and paddler Kavika Crevelio and Ikaika Rogerson, former board member of OKRA, the Oahu Hawaiian Canoe Racing Association. We talked to them this morning about acknowledging the rich 70-year history of the prestigious Molokai-Hoi race, which we marked yesterday.
4: Support for HPR comes from Waikaloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikaloabeachresort.com.
0: want to perform at their best, there are a couple of essential ingredients that connect the mind and the body. What types of treatments can help restore this essential balance? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert to learn more. That's today at 630 on The Body Show.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com.
0: Lou takes a closer look at the governor's race for the upcoming general election. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Nice to be with you. Yes. So you folks uh, had a little talk story with uh, the uh, two candidates, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona and Lieutenant Governor Josh Green.
5: We did. It's been it's been generally a fascinating year and, and uh, our story today actually focuses on sort of the ethics issues and some of the things that have been going on in the community that I think everybody is sort of painfully aware of right now and Honestly, I sometimes wondered if the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI were trying to send us some kind of a message over the last 20 months or so because they've been popping out basically one indictment or one plea agreement, uh, one after another. And you kind of wonder if they're sending us a message or something. But in any case, Hawaii's had corruption scandals before, but nothing like this. And the feds moved forward with a whole bunch of this stuff in the months leading up to the election year or in the election year itself. Um and you might think there would have been a whole bunch of political fallout from this, but now it appears that there may not be. Um, and, and, and to sort of put this in context, I just want to recap some of this. I think most people are familiar with the string of cases that involved the convictions of former police chief Louis Kaloha and his, his wife, uh, Catherine Kaloha. We had Keith Kaneshiro, who was indicted by the feds for allegedly prosecuting someone in exchange for campaign contributions. We had a Honolulu architect who admitted to paying more than $100,000 in bribes to city permitting officials. And there were also, of course, the famous guilty pleas by uh, State Representative Ty Cullen, and Senate Majority Leader Kalani English, uh, early this year in a case where they took bribes to influence legislation. (laughs) And then there was a Big Island County housing official who admitted to accepting nearly $2 million in bribes, so the neighbor islands as well. And then there was the Kauai County Councilman, former Kauai County Councilman Arthur Brun, who was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for methamphetamine trafficking, and former Big Island, uh, Hawaii Island County Council Chairman Stacey Higa, who was sent to prison for embezzlement and other offenses. And I feel like I'm forgetting someone. <laughs> but in any case...
0: It's a long list. It's
5: that, a <laughs> long list. And I don't think we've really seen that kind of, of those kinds of incidents and, and prosecutions of virtually all of them by the federal government. Um, and in other places and in other times... That kind of a list would have resulted in, in colossal political fallout. Um, there would have been consequences for the larger system, and the voters would get mad, and I think many of them are mad in, in, in Honolulu and Hawaii right now. Um, and the candidates, you would think, would be quick to announce a slate of pro- reforms that they they want to implement to prevent this kind of stuff from happening again. We're not really seeing that this year from either Republican Duke or from Democrat Josh Green.
0: Yeah, and I know when we had Iona here uh, in the studio um, before the primary, he was talking about public corruption. Now, here we have a lay of public corruption cases, um, but, uh, you know, as you point out, you know, so what are we going to do about it?
5: Right. I mean, Duke's pitch is, is understandable. The, the pitch that he basically makes is um, his main pitch has been that Hawaii needs to elect more Republicans, including him, of course, uh, to restore some balance in the political landscape. And he says that something needs to be done to break that kind of hammerlock that the Democrats have on power in this state, and says the real back-and-forth competition between the parties would help to keep everybody honest. I'm not, I haven't really encountered a lot of people that would really argue with that, but when it comes to specifics about exactly what he wants to do, there aren't very many. Um, one thing that both Iona and Green, Green agree on um, they're both open to public funding of campaigns, my um, owners, uh, but they don't really have much in the way of specific proposals, either one of them. Um, another issue that they both agree upon, and it turns out is is pretty popular with the voting public, is the whole idea of term limits. Um, we, we polled over at Civil Beat, we've polled before, and we found that there's something like 70% uh, support for the idea of imposing term limits. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's not for the governor to do that. Um, you can say that you support that but it'll really in the end be up to the legislature to put that on the ballot as a constitutional amendment Um, and and that may or may not happen and then of course it's up to the voters whether they want to adopt that the other thing is that recently there's some been been some discussion of term limits that said hey you know this may not actually have much of an effect on on corruption um the the research of the the um it was the commissioner improved standards of conduct, uh, did a research into it, in, into the political science literature, and found that there really isn't any evidence that term limits have much of an impact on public corruption. Um, and then the head of the state ethics commission is actually saying that he thinks it might make things worse because the, um, new, the new crops of freshman legislators who would be coming in would be more beholden to special interests than, than the old timers.
0: Well, we did, so, see, we, we did see the um, uh, term limits with Mayor Fossey uh, uh, at the Honolulu um, uh, you know, administration, executive branch, and then, you know, then they moved to do term limits for the council members.
5: Exactly. And, um, and, and I, I guess we can all debate whether or not that resulted in, in a reduction in corruption. Um, I, I don't know anyone who really makes the case for that, but, but that's possible. Um, so so then, then we have, on, on the other side, we have basically Josh Green's uh, pitch, which is, uh, he basically says, if elected governor, my administration will maintain the highest standards of ethics, transparency, and accountability, and have a zero-tolerance policy for corruption or unethical or illegal behavior. That's admirable. That's, that's I think, the kind of thing that, that we hope for, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so we'll see then if uh, any more hay is made of it in the in the weeks leading up to the general. Um, but yeah, certainly public corruption, uh, a problem, and what are we going to do about it? But thanks so much. Hey, thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. You know, we've been hearing about how Kaimuki Middle uh, School's STEM program could win a million dollars in December. A we of teachers at the school's Voyager Center entered the YAS Prize competition, which highlights innovative ways to educate students especially in a post-pandemic world. HBR's Casey Harlan was here to tell us more about this national contest. Good morning.
7: Good morning. Yes. Uh, so pretty exciting news, right? Um, a middle school here in Hawaii could win a million dollars for this national uh, competition. And yeah, as you said, uh, the center uh, advanced to the round of 64. And to kind of put that into perspective, uh, you know, March Madness, if you kind of are looking at your bracket, around 64, that's not a big deal. You know, that's the first few days of the tournament, right? But to put this into perspective, more than 2,000 groups applied to get to this point or to get into this uh, competition. Only 64 have been named or have been, are advancing into this uh, contest. And Kaimaki Middle School's Voyager Center uh, was one of them so they were awarded a hundred thousand dollars just for making it to this point point. and this is the yas prize stop contest and that's an acronym for sustainable transformational outstanding and permissionless and i kind of had to do some research on what permissionless meant but that basically means that uh they don't need the uh, permission of uh, say state regulators to do something and so uh, Leanna Lam uh, is a seventh grade teacher. Uh, I spoke with her. Uh, she's a STEM teacher at Kaimuki Middles Voyager Center. And this is basically what the contest is about.
8: It was started in the pandemic in 2021, and it's meant to award educators who kept performing throughout the pandemic. They were trying to think of ways to recognize the work of educators for, perf- for outperforming for kids. During the pandemic, when all the schools are closed, they felt like some folks would make excuses on why they couldn't do things for kids, and they trying to find those of us who still tried our hardest and had positive impact.
7: And so how she uh, actually got into this contest was uh, she heard it from, you know, a friend who works at the State Department of Education who, you know, said that, hey, there's this competition, and then she got in contact with... Uh, an entrepreneur who helped her create this uh, pitch for them and but basically what happened within 2021 you know distance learning was still happening and you know there was a lot of the fallout of the pandemic you know kids were disengaged even the teachers were disengaged Uh, there was just this isolation and everything that was happening right and so I was asking Lam how she was able to keep uh, the students engaged and this is basically what they did uh, for uh, 2021.
8: They were painting the walls, they were refurbishing furniture, we were asking for donations, like we were really scrappy, like there was no money. And then we made sure to capture all of that journey and we tried to share it out. And I'm more, and I know I'm talking 30 now, but like I'm very uncomfortable you know, the whole public speaking thing, right? Like, in front of an audience honestly. So, like, that's not really our thing. And I don't think the kids felt comfortable with that either, but we would challenge ourselves because we saw so much purpose in bringing the space to life for our classmates. Especially knowing that since it was the thick of the pandemic and the distance learning, like, teachers are getting disengaged, kids are getting disengaged. Like, nobody loves going to school and it's distance learning. And you're online from, like, 8 to 2, like, everybody hates it you know so we were trying to battle that and and give them a sense of purpose
7: a little bit of context actually uh they decided to renovate an office that they claimed uh for the center uh because they didn't really have a a set of classrooms or anything like that so through this renovation of uh this office space you know the kids and the teachers and everybody felt like they had something uh, that tied them all together and that kind of kept them engaged throughout this process and the kids would apply for grants to renovate it because as she said there was no money and you know money is really hard to come by especially on a middle school level and so um, going forward you know this who is going to participate in this uh, accelerator program in the coming weeks to kind of pitch an idea that could be replicated elsewhere uh, so that um, You know, to keep kids engaged and to, especially after the pandemic when there's a lot of these issues of learning loss and trying to figure out how to reach uh, kids to get a better education. And so basically, if they advance to the round of 32, they receive another $100,000 totaling $200,000. And that's for the school to keep, that's what they can uh, get. But the grand prize is a million, will be announced in December. And you know, up until this point, I asked Lam how she, if she was grateful uh, just to make it past this round 64. And so she, believe, she, she is, uh, but she believes the money uh, right now will help the school continue building upon its sense of community.
8: We've noticed that the Voyager Center, it evolved to somewhat of a community catalyst where we can dream internally. And then we, when we have that focal point, not just to build the space, but whatever project we're working on, once we have that focal project, then through that, we build internal community, we bridge it with the external community expertise and resources, and we all kind of come together to do a lot of good and make positive impact in our community. So that, I think we want to be more intentional about reweaving and strengthening that social fabric of our neighborhood.
7: So we'll see uh, what comes out of the accelerator program and what she's pitching. Right now, they uh, are still trying to figure out what they're going to pitch and how they can replicate, maybe, or um, have what they did throughout the pandemic or 2021 school year and uh, move that forward so that other schools can replicate something so similar. So
0: this is a million dollars on top of what they've already gotten in? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Mm, that'll go far. All exactly. Right, but thank, thanks so much, Casey. That was HPR's Casey Harlow uh, talking about Kaimuki Middle School in the running to win a million-dollar prize in the YAS competition. You can read his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
4: Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. On this week's On the Media,
7: New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman had unmatched access to the Trump White House, and that made her a lightning rod for critics. People use this word access as if it implies some kind of a transaction. You know, we talk to people. That's what journalists do. You're talking to me right now. And I'm sure there will be people who will criticize you for it. Don't miss this week's On the Media from
1: WNYC.
4: Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for today's programming comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting The Moth, an evening of storytelling, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com, presented by Hawaii Public Radio and Hawaii Theater Center.
0: Earlier in the show, we asked you for the name of the third voyaging canoe to travel to the Pacific in the traditional style of early Polynesian wayfinders. The crew included veterans of the original Hokulea voyage, one of them, Clay Bertelsman, led the carving of the vessel, which measured 54 feet and carried 500 square feet of sail. In February of 1995, the Makali'i set sail for Rayatea in Tahiti Nui and Nukuhiba in the Marquesas Islands. The voyage was called Ohana Lohomoana, the voyaging families of the vast ocean. And auspiciously during its launch of its maiden voyage, the vessel was accompanied by a double rainbow. And we don't have to tell you, that is a good sign. No winners today, but that was our backyard quiz for today. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at (music) hawaiipublicradio.org. The University of Hawaii Athletic Program pays homage to the 50th anniversary of Title IX, Equity in Education Act, with an event on Friday. It will be a gathering of movers and shakers in our community who owe much to former Congressman and Honolulu City Councilwoman Patsy Mink, who authored the bill. We ho our interview with Marilyn Moniz, a former volleyball standout and University of Hawaii Athletic Administrator, who finally recalls the five decades that followed the historic change which created open pathways for women in sports. Title IX
9: really set the course for my life and it's been my privilege to work with Title IX and have that mandate in federal law and it allowed me to accomplish so many of my dreams and that's what it is It's a dream maker it's open doors for opportunity for women and men 50 years ago it passed in june 23rd 1972 and that was a great year many things were happening in our country and patsy mink our representative to congress at that time fought very hard and she was the co-author 50 years ago when Title IX passed, and that's why it's named after her, the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. And I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you ask me another question. But I can set the scene. I know exactly where I was 50 years ago that made that impact on my life. Okay, so take us there. Well, I was down the road here at Kaimuki High School. I have made 18 years old in April. Roe versus Wade had just passed in February. Watergate was happening. And President Richard Nixon signed Title IX into action June 23rd, 1972. In May, I graduated from high school, and I had played volleyball there for three years in a row with my other close, very close teammates, and we were in the gym May, and in comes walking. The University of Hawaii very first volleyball coach, Alan Kang, set by the women's athletic director to put a volleyball team together for the University of Hawaii first time, along with a track program and that was the beginning of the Rainbow Wahine athletic program which by no coincidence is also celebrating its 50th year of providing opportunities for women to play sports and represent the state of Hawaii. And I got to be one of them because Coach Kang recruited about five of us Kaimaki High School Bulldog players. We were the OIA champions my junior and senior year. And I'm sure in his recruiting and research, he found out what schools had strong players and strong programs. We were coached by a female coach at the time who also impacted my life. Coach Anona Napoleon, a surfer and a volleyball player at the time. She had three children already. Two were twins. She put them in the car carrier and put them behind the gymnastics mat and so she could hit balls at us. So she trained us for three years and we were the OIA championship, which led to the UH coach coming to recruit us and invite us to play
0: on his team. Wow, so you were there from the very beginning. What was that experience like for you, knowing that you had doors opening? It was really
9: awesome, beautiful, wonderful I mean women cry when they tell the story because that's the year a lot of them did not have the opportunities to transition from high school to colleges. Not all of them, many of them did not have women's athletics program. That was the time when this law was the impetus for schools to start to add women's athletics. And the University of Hawaii was one of them and if it wasn't for Dr. Donna Thompson who worked in the health education recreation department at the time to take it upon herself because she had had come over in the 60s to start a track program for the university. So she had the background and the experience to be able to start an athletic program for us. So we were fortunate to have her there. And she knew Title IX was on the horizon. She was in the national limelight and on committees and in the AIAW, which is the Governing Association for Women, collegiate sports at the time. So she knew how to leverage it. And she did pretty good in starting the program. Opposition, a lot of opposition. But our men's program was generous enough to provide $5,000 to our women's athletics program so our volleyball program could start and our track program could start.
0: So, so talk about you know, what you had to work with. 5,000 doesn't really go very far. (laughs) No, it does not. (laughs) So they had to be very
9: creative. We didn't really travel the first two years. We didn't really have scholarships. By my junior year, we had tuition waivers, which helped a lot. And by my senior year, we recruited our very first three mainland recruits that came in, one from Chicago and and two from California to help make our team a stronger team. And my junior and senior year at the University of Hawaii, we were second in the nation to UCLA. We were privileged to go to the national championship because Dr. Donna Thompson raised the money and got some support from the state legislature. And without those women and men, we couldn't have traveled. We went to Portland and took second to UCLA. And in December '75. Adonis and Coach Dave Soji started his career, that was very first year, was my senior year, and both of them took us to Princeton University to play in our second national championship, and we took second again to UCLA. But the real story there was Dr. Thompson, our women's athletic director, I should just say athletic director, took us down to the national capital and Representative Patsy Mink and Representative Sparky Matsunaga hosted our team to a lunch and we talked about volleyball and sports. Cause she was always an avid sports supporter. I think she played basketball when she was in high school at Maui High. But we took this picture, this classic picture, I have it. On the steps of the national capital, the team, seven or eight of us, our trainer and Patsy Man, December 1975. So I, I treasure that. It's an autograph
0: picture with Patsy in it. Well, we've just learned that uh, her portrait is going to be unveiled, and it will hang in Statuary Hall. So everybody needs to know her contribution to making the dreams of so many young girls, young women come alive you know it's 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 a it's a great honor it's really hard to think that you know 50 years has gone by and yet in schools across the country even here in hawaii that girls programs girls athletic programs are just getting the short shrift you know that we have to fight that's true there's still a lot of work to be done there's progress. Every
9: decade, there's progress. And, you know, for example, my experience at the University of Hawaii, I graduated in 76, and one of the purposes of Title IX was to provide educational opportunities for professional schools for women because there were quotas at that time in the 70s for women in medical school and law school. And that's one of the things that Patsy had to fight against because she could not get into medical school. She applied, as I understand, into a dozen medical schools because her dream was to be a doctor. And she ended up because she couldn't get into medical school to law school at the University of Chicago. So that's always in the back of her mind as she's championing women's rights in Title IX through this process in the late 60s and and the early 70s. And that's when the university's law school and medical school also started in the 70s. So I had the sports experience, I got to play volleyball. I didn't know sitting at Kaimeki Gym in May I'd ever play volleyball competitively except for maybe club and local women national volleyball, not at a school anymore, but I got that privilege because of her efforts and Dr. Donis Thompson. And so we have to remember that the medical school and the law school, when they started, Title IX was already in effect, and so they didn't have to labor to correct inequities for women at the law school. They could just develop the law school and the medical school, keeping that in mind, and I'm sure the law school's probably 50-50, and the medical school's probably close to that these days. All those efforts started 50 years ago, so I got to go to the UH Law School, you know, and that was awesome because that set the career for me. I was a deputy prosecuting attorney, in Maui then I went into Parks and Recreation and then in 89, I came back to the university, and I walked in the footsteps of Dr. Donis Thompson because I was the third women's athletic director at the University of Hawaii. So I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. So I not only played, but I got to be an administrator at the university. And when I got there, we were already in Title IX violation. We already had an investigation in the late 70s and the early 80s. And there were some legal things that happened nationwide. But when I came in in 1989, I picked up the mantle. I looked in the files and I educated myself. What is Title IX? Because I I had done my law school paper on Title IX. I didn't know I'd ever become athletic administrator. It happened. And that's why I always say it was just part of my destiny. And I was in the right place, born at the right time and went to the right
0: high school and then college. Well, I was just going to ask, you know, what did you see, you know, at the University of Hawaii? you know um, the battles that y- you had to you know be involved in d- to kind of get them to to be in compliance
9: well I think the toughest battles when Donis developed the program because by the time I was a senior at UH Athletics she had seven or eight sports already going struggling but already going so she had the vision she put the initial programs together And it was tough working with the men's program at that time because, you know, sometimes we're short sighted and we see our financial resources and it's a natural thing not to want your program to suffer. So it was a battle and a struggle. So when I came in in 89, Adonis was still there. She was wrapping up a 30 year career at the University of Hawaii. And we put a group together um, that she had done with Eve Anderson back in the 70s. It was more of a fundraising support group for women's athletics. We put that little group together because we knew we'd have to have struggle. We, we didn't need to have support behind women's athletics because there was a lot of changes that needed to be done in 89. So Donna's kind of gave me a motto. She goes, you don't have to be like I was. You can be your own personality and fight the battle in your own way. So I took that to heart because I have to work with all these people. Right. Um, we have to figure out how we're going to do this together to build a strong women's athletic program at the University of Hawaii. Well, what were you, I guess, most proud of in your time there? I think it's adding four to six sports along the way, getting people to see what Title IX, educate them and make them aware. We only had 98 Rainbow Wahine in 1989. By the time we finished, we had over 200 because the men had 260 already. So they would be equitable in their participation opportunities because access to the athletic program really is the most important thing. If you don't have access or the opportunity to play your sport, You don't have anything, you can't get scholarships, you can't travel, you can't vie for a championship, you don't have a team and things like that. So to provide to me the most important thing was to have the opportunity to play like I had. I was really fortunate to be there at the right place and the right time and people fighting for our opportunity to play.
0: That was Marilyn Moniz, volleyball standout and former assistant administrator, talking about the opportunities that Title IX has given her over the last five decades. We originally aired this interview on June twentieth, 2022. Moniz was invited to attend the Hawaii Athletic Directors Association meeting earlier this spring and shared the stage at a forum with three female high school athletic directors. She said 30 years ago, there was only one. And that event at the University of Hawaii Athletics Department this weekend, we are told, is sold out. Thank you. That's it for today. Tomorrow we hear more about paddling. We're going to talk about the world sprints and the many gold medals that the Hawaii Team's won as we look to host the Hawaii Sprints in Hilo in 2024. Do you have a paddling memory to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Missed something and want to listen back to something you heard? Uh, Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on The Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.